All right, everybody ready to worship? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's, let's just begin to direct our hearts towards the Lord. I know you, I'm sure you're not going to get tired of hearing this passage. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And the overall objective of everything we're doing is, is the return of Christ. It is the prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so everything we're doing is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, is to hasten the return of the Lord. You know what that means, hasten? It's not a word we usually use in this context, but it means to speed up, to speed up. We're not trying to slow down end time events. We're not trying to slow down all the things we think are supposed to happen between now and his return. We're actually called to speed them up. Do you realize that? (laughs) Because anything that's prophesied in the scriptures that's going to happen, it's going to happen in a certain sequence leading to the return of Jesus. And the, the posture of the apostles is we're not trying to keep that stuff from happening. We're trying to keep it. We're trying to bring it to pass so that he returns. And so our prayer is your kingdom come. Lord, this, the end of this is coming. We know you're going to come. You're going to rule the nations. You're going to have a kingdom of glory and virtue and love which is going to consume the earth. It's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. That's where we're going. So when we're, when we're worshiping, we're saying, God, come. We agree with the Spirit, and the Bible says in Revelations, the Spirit and the bride say, come. So our desire here, it starts, worship starts with, oh, Lord, I, I want more of you. I just want more of you. Everything we're doing is to draw the Lord. The Lord is waiting to be pulled on, and we want to pull on him. Father, we say this morning, let your power, your glory come. Father, we want to exalt you. We want to worship you. We want to to give you the glory. Do your name. We want to respond to you as a, a faithful, believing people would respond. So, Lord, be blessed by our worship this morning. Let's lean in. Father, we thank you for the unimaginable wonder of what you have made available for us. You know, as we've been worshiping this morning, different people have been coming into mind. And uh, I I am seeing transformation. As I think about the different folks that the different levels of brokenness, even my own life, you know, people look at me and think, wow, you know, it'd be great to have uh, the confidence to stand up in front of people. They joke about the fact that people would rather be the guy who died at a funeral rather than the one speaking at the funeral. They're so afraid of speaking. Well, I didn't make myself this. I was probably more terrified than anybody But Jesus entered my life. God introduced himself to me. And for the last 40 years, I've been drawing closer and closer with each incremental step towards him. Something 
changes inside of me. And that invitation has been given to all mankind. Jesus invited everybody of his generation. He said, come to me, all you who are weary, everyone who's tired, everyone who's broken, everyone who's fearful. I have a remedy for your brokenness. And this is the promise that we have. We don't have to be perfect to, to engage in the journey. We don't have to pretend we're, we're done or we're close to the end. We just start where we're at. But God has a program of rebuilding, restoration, recovery, and deliverance from fear. In a few minutes, I'm going to talk about fear and how God has de- designed us to be free from fear. You weren't designed for fear. Fear is an infection. Fear is a sickness that God wants to deliver you to deliver you from. I didn't choose these songs today, but I thought how fitting that the last words of this last verse is about fear. Father, I pray today you give us a glimpse of what it looks like to be without fear. God, we can't even imagine walking the streets of this world without fear. God, give us a glimpse today of what it could possibly be like, I pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Let's give it up for Pastor Mark. It's good to have him home. All right. Yeah, it is great to be here. (sighs) <sighs> well, you know, I've I just been uh, thinking about the era and the time that we're in. And I feel like, like God is trying to demonstrate some things to us. And this morning I'm going to talk about a phenomenon that has applications uh, on a sociological level. Like something's happening in our nation that we are observing, we're seeing, we're taking note of. And you could measure it, you could articulate it in different ways, but it basically it's this. It's the increase of fear and the decrease in love. You know, uh, courage is not the opposite of fear. Love is. And the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. That the alternative to fear is not uh, boldness or cur- you know, courage, but it's, it's, it's uh, love. So uh, the question is, see, you can, you, can, you can fake to a certain degree boldness and courage. In fact, I just saw this thing the other day. Somebody sent me this little video. It's, uh, it was trying to illustrate people online versus people in person. Have you ever notice how people online have a certain courage that uh, disappears as soon as they're in person? You know, I've, I've had that happen where people, you know, boldly uh, kind of... Uh, uh, counter things I say online and then I have a chance to be with them in person and they never bring up those things. <laughs> I think, where is the, where's the courage gone? But it's just, a, in this case, just a, two dogs and one dog's behind a glass door and they release the other dog and they just viciously charge at one another. They're barking. I mean, teeth, canines, you know, spit flying everywhere. Like, vicious. boy, if these, you think, if these guys could get at each other, it would be just mayhem. But no, they pull back to the door and they instantly get calm. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a certain kind of courage that manifests when there is no risk. And um, so I've been, I've been watching this. And, you know, there's been over and over there have been uh, uh, these, these evidences of the, the dissolution of courage and strength and really honor in our culture. It's being uh, examined in different ways, and sometimes it's humorous, and sometimes it's not. But you've got a lot of YouTubers and people who are going and making, doing these public experiences where they're, they're actually causing uh, injustice to happen before people and to see if people, others standing by, will intervene or not. And it's stunning how often people won't do it. I mean, I saw one where this guy is kidnapping a woman, right, on a, in broad daylight, on the sidewalk, and the test is, will the approaching pedestrian intervene? And time and time again, the approaching pedestrian either stops and just looks, or maybe takes out a camera to film it, or might even call the police, but in many cases turns around and goes the other way while the kidnapping is happening. And I look at that and I think, you know, 40, 50 years ago, if you had done this exact same experiment, you would get probably near 100% involvement. And so something's happening on a, on a cultural level on, on, in terms of our society, in terms of our cities, in terms of our communities that is revealing the destruction, some kind of destruction has been entering more and more. And, uh, and this, this weirdness, I say it's weird because to me it's unnatural for men not to show courage. It's unnatural for men not to risk and, and uh, enter into the fray. It's unnatural for mothers not to protect their children and do what's right. I mean, these, these things, God has made us in this way, but somehow we're losing touch with this. Why is that? Well, I believe basically this, that without God, everything begins to, to, to fall apart. Everything disintegrates. Everything turns to dust. That God is the sustaining power of all the virtues that we thought were inherent to humanity. Those virtues are not inherent to humanity. They came from God. And that's what the Bible says. It says every good and perfect gift comes from above. But here's the problem. If you grow up in a culture where people are caring, where people are loving, where people, you know, act against their own interests for the benefit of the, of the whole, and, you, and you're just surrounded by that all the time, you're inculcated in behaviors that you learn, and you begin to believe that that's just the way we are. That's what you begin to believe, but it's not true. And it, and it takes the disillusion, it takes the losing those things before you realize what it was. Right? Who's that, uh, Joni Mitchell? You don't know what you got until it's gone. Right? And so, and so only when uh, a culture has the inability to step forward in courage and do what is right and be free from fear, do you realize that, oh, I guess it wasn't so innate. I guess it wasn't so natural. I guess this commodity of courage and boldness and strength and leadership and, and uh, all these virtues that we, we know are correct, I, I guess they aren't as natural as we thought they were. And so uh, we're in a time when 
And, it, and it's a good thing. It's always really a good thing for a people who have begun to enter into assumptions about their righteousness to realize it was never theirs. And that's the point of that truth. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the Father of lights, the Bible says, from whom, in whom there's no shadow of turning. That means he's endlessly the same. He's constantly the same guy all the time. We, on the other hand, up and down, up and down. So I want to read a scripture because I think we, we lose sight of the fact that, that fear is the central enemy that we have as people. And there's a scripture in Hebrews 2.15. By the way, let me just pause. You know, if you're visiting today and I see that we have a number of visitors with us. And well, I'd like to say, hey, go out and get a free coffee afterwards. I'm not sure there's, there's coffee available. Is, are we, no. Next week. Okay. Yeah, if you come next week, you can get a free coffee. Today, I send you warm visions of refreshing caffeine. (laughs) So let that comfort your soul. But uh, if you're here for the first time today and uh, you're wondering what we're about, uh, I was thinking about that. I was thinking as we're worshiping, I think, I wonder what people think who've never been in a church before. You know, because when I was young, I went to church, but it wasn't this kind of church. It, it was a church full of liturgy. It was a church with ceremonies. And all the liturgy and all the ceremonies represented something that happened a long time ago. Right. And, and so the difference between us and that kind of church is we believe it's real. We believe it's not just in history, but it's present. We believe that God wants to meet with people right today. We believe that the presence of God is something that you can experience right now. So if you were here today and you didn't know what was going on, that's fine. Most of us didn't know what was going on. We sort of just pretend like we know. <laughs> no, we're, we, th- we do see through a glass darkly, but, but there's an invitation that we have because the God who created all things is longing to have a relationship with you. The God who created everything, whose words brought creation into being, who fashioned the firmament, the Bible says, who created the oceans and the land, he did so with his voice. That God is wanting to have a relationship with you. And, uh, and he's, he's all of us who have begun to have a relationship with him and his son, Jesus Christ, we are, we are drawing nearer to him every day. And we're growing in the knowledge of him. And so uh, you don't have to be afraid of not knowing. There's tons of things we don't know. There's tons of things we don't understand. But we're trying to uh, worship him in a way that meets uh, who he really is. As the scripture says, it says, uh, uh, give him the glory he deserves. So let's do that. Well, this is what it says in Hebrews 2.15. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself also shared the same. This, this scripture is talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus coming to the earth and that when he came to the earth, he became a real man. And I'm not going to get into all the technical reasons of the Levitical law and all, all of that as to why he came as a man and all the things that he did. But... This scripture synthesizes the one thing that he was trying to do, the single most important thing. It says that he came in the earth as a man, shared in the same weakness, shared in the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. 
Jesus came and died so that you could live. That's what it's saying. And not only that, it says, that is, the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, uh, and he, Jesus came to release those, those who, through the fear of death, were all their lifetime so, subject to slavery or bondage. I want you to think about that for a second. Because, you know, we, we live in a democratic country, and we're, we're taught to, oh, you're free. You know, you can do what you want in this country. You're allowed to do this, and you're allowed to do that. And Of course, we've, we look at different governmental systems across the globe, and we realize, that, well, if you've ever been to a communist country, if you've ever been to, to uh, Venezuela, if you've ever been to Cuba, you realize you're not free to do anything. Matter, in fact, when I was in Cuba, there was a guy I was told about who went to jail for 20 years for eating his own cow. It was literally illegal to eat your own cow. Now, we may think we have a lot of liberties here, but watch out. If we don't, if we don't change the trajectory we're on 20 years from now, it will be illegal and you will be in prison for eating a cow. That's the trends that are out there. So we, we have this sense that we live in liberty, especially when we see others have less liberty. We think, oh, I, I am really free. But the truth is... We don't really understand freedom. We don't know freedom. We know partially what freedom looks like. And we have versions of freedom that we have enjoyed to some degree all of our lives. I mean, I was, I was born, I lived in a certain family, I had a certain life experience, and I thought, well, I, I'm free, until I realized I wasn't. <laughs> until I realized how much fear I had. And fear made me afraid. I remember, and this might, this, maybe you can't identify with this, but I was so fearful and so insecure that as a, an adult young man, 18 years old, I had to muster the courage to get up from my table at the bar to walk to the bathroom. I had to work it through in my mind what that would look like, you know, to make sure, like, is, is my hair okay, or is my zipper up, you know, I, I want to make sure I don't look stupid, you know. I mean, the fear of looking stupid dominated my thoughts. I, I was so not free. Now, the brokenness was expedited in my life because of a number of things, which I won't talk about today, but suffice to say this, that we all have been exposed to fear all of our lives. And that's what the Bible declares. It said, listen, fear entered into creation when Adam and Eve ate of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. And the tree was a tree that promised that they would look wise, that they would have the right things. But they began to eat of that tree. As soon as they ate of that tree, fear entered into them. There's a bunch of other things that happened, which I won't get into, but I just want to talk for a second about that fear. Now, they didn't, it seemed so organic at the time, like they didn't even notice that some transition had happened. But all of a sudden, they became self-aware. That self-awareness caused them to realize they were naked. And so, I don't know, I always think that's funny. I mean, how many of you would, could be naked in the room today and not realize that? What are the chances that your, if your clothes disappeared, that you would go on as per usual? <laughs> Right? So, so obviously a significant transformation had happened when that happened, more than we even realize. But anyway, God came to meet with Adam and Eve that night in the evening, in the dusk of the day. And when he came to them, they fled from him. And they said, 
we heard your voice, but we, we were afraid because we were naked. And so God starts dealing with the, their newfound liberty. Which See, that's what they did. They, were, they took of that tree because Satan came and said, if you eat this tree, you're going to be free. And they didn't get freedom. What they got was slavery. They got independence. They got independence, but independence is not freedom. And that's, that's the bill of goods that's always being sold to every generation, that independence equals freedom. Independence does not equal freedom. Independence equals fear. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to be dependent. And, of course, we're at, man, this is so funny. We're at a time, when I was young, we wanted to get away from our parents. And now, in this generation, like, kids never leave home. <laughs> you got 35-year-olds, right, living in mom's basement. You know, and if that, is that who you are, uh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> there might be other justifiable reasons. So we're not going to, you know, it's not an indictment necessarily. <laughs> but uh, this liberty, uh, liberty is not so easily had. And so fear entered, entered creation so that when God, who was their creator, who never posed any threat against them, just the sound of his voice in the garden caused them to recoil and to hide themselves and conceal themselves. And so that's the situation we have ever since. But what, what Hebrews is telling us is that, listen, it's the structure behind the natural world is far more real than you know. And that the, the advancement of that structure of slavery continues all the days of your life. And in fact, if you don't know Jesus, if you aren't saved, your whole life is inculcated in slavery. Everything you do is because of fear. And that Satan's ability to rule over the nations, his ability to to dominate our mindset, our culture, the the way we raise our kids, the way we do politics, everything that we do is under the dictates of fear. Now, if, if you really, I mean, if the world would really wake up to that, they would want to get, hey, this is, I, I want real liberty. What does liberty look like? Well, liberty is not possible until you're free from fear. Wow. Now, let me say this. I know there's some Christians in here. And not every Christian is completely free from fear, right? And so God, when he's promising us freedom, it's, it's a freedom that's realized in increments, right? It's, it's realized it's one step after another. Yeah. And so uh, I won't even talk about the, the anatomy of how that happens, but sometimes you don't even know yet you're fearful. Sometimes we do things and we think, well, I'm just doing it because that's what I like. And then you realize you do it because you're afraid. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. So let's start here. We don't know nothing. <laughs> Start with that assumption that we, we got a lot of learning to do, that, that things are not what they appear to be. And until God brings us into his ultimate construct of reality, we're kind of stuck in a world that always promises things it doesn't deliver. And things parade as something they are not. And we don't even know the difference. Now, I, uh, I'm saying this and I'm going to get to some conclusions, but I want to share something that was interesting t- to me. My son, Matt, my son, Matt, sent me something this week that I thought was really interesting. I've seen most of this before, but 
But I, I thought, oh, it's, it's kind of curious that this is crossing my desk at this time. But it's, um, I can't remember the name of the title of the article, but it was, it was like five psychological um, experiments that show us certain realities about the world in which we live. These, these five realities explain some of the dynamics uh, that we experience in our workplaces, in, our, in, our, in the education system. You know, they're just, they're just part of the, the nature of what we are. But these experiments help identify particularly fear. Now, they don't necessarily talk about fear too much. They talk about mass psychosis. They talk about herd mentality. They talk about intimidation and things like that. But all those things are just other words for what fear makes you do. And so, uh, so I'm going I'm to read through these five experiments really quickly. I got a, a sore back, and so uh, if I look like I'm, I'm ex- in excruciating pain, it's because I am. <laughs> now, the, the first one is called the Milgram Experiment. And it was, uh, it was done in 1963 by Yale psychologist Stanley Milham. And the setting is simple. Subject A is told to conduct a memory test on subject B. Okay, so let's just say, uh, um, Paul, (laughs) where's your wife today, by the way? I was going to call your wife up and do this with you. So let's say Paul and Ben. Subject A, subject B. So Paul is told to conduct a a memory test on Ben. And he's going to administer... Electric shocks to Ben. Yes. Now, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Uh, so w- the memory test is we're going to ask questions to Ben. And every time he gets it wrong, you send the electric shock. So subject B does, uh, does that actually in this case does not really exist. There is no Ben. It's just Paul. He's just doing it himself. So the electric shots, shocks aren't real. Instead, actors would cry out and ask for help and pretend they are unconscious, all the while subject A is being encouraged to continue administering the shocks. So you imagine that. There's warped-minded Paul. <laughs> Sadistic, evil, you know, carefree in his delivery of cruel brutality. He is giving these shocks, and there isn't anybody on the side, but he doesn't know that. And so what happened is uh, uh, they found that subject A was not at all inclined to stop. (laughs) Wow, isn't that crazy? So the conclusion of this experiment was basically to say, it's called, he coined the term diffusion of responsibility. Describing the psychological process by which a person can excuse or justify doing harm to someone if they believe it's not really their fault. You know, they don't, if they think they're not going to be held accountable or they're in the line, well, I'm just, this is just my job. It's what I'm doing. And, and, you know, what I, I have to submit to my boss. I have to submit to the company. And so this... This covering, if you will, this, this uh, refuge of anonymity and, uh, and freedom from responsibility created the courage and the desire to do that, which is really strange. Now, as a Christian, I think it's, it's, it's there because 
There's something in the fallen nature of man that is insidious, sadistic, cruel, and evil. And, uh, and, but, you know, with, uh, without Christ. Now, the, the goal of Christianity and the kingdom of God is to extract that from our, our being. But, fundamentally, people are evil. Ah, we'll stop there. The next one is called the Stanford Prison Experiment. Probably fairly well known in these days. But the experiment was then in 1971. And the experiment set up a mock prison for one week. And a group of subjects designated guards. uh, With a group of subjects designated guards and the others prisoners. Both sides were provided with uniforms. And the prisoners were given a number. The guards were ordered to only address prisoners by their number. Not by their name. Uh, there are a number of other rules and procedures as well, but uh, that's the basic, basic idea. In brief, over the course of the week, guards became increasingly sadistic, dealing out punishments to disobedient prisoners, rewarding good prisoners in order to try and divide them. Isn't that interesting? Many of the prisoners simply took the abuse, and infighting began amongst the prisoners... between troublemakers and good prisoners. Wow. Uh, I I think when I first read about this, that the hostility became so real that they had to stop the experiment halfway through. That, uh, you know, even, even they knew, they knew this was not real. But somehow... You know, something was being tapped into. Uh, And this is the reality. People might want to say there is no fallen nature. They might want to say, you know, I'm basically a good person. But the Bible says basically humanity is not good. Basically humanity has been infected with something from the time of Adam and Eve that causes them to do at the end of the day what's right for them. And only, only uh, by virtue of outside pressures, including culture and expectations, do we ever uh, modify that impulse or even recognize it? So, uh, yeah, that's uh, (laughs) the conclusion of this, writes, prison guards became sadistic, prisoners became obedient. All this despite no real laws being broken, no legal authority, and no real requirement to stay. Wow. If you give people power and dehumanize those below them, they will become sadistic. If you put people in prison, they will act like they are in prison. In short, people will act the way they are treated. Now, they have, in the article, they broke down different applications, uh, especially applicable to our contemporary environment, but I'll leave that to your own imagination for the time being. But uh, the other experiment, the next one is called the Ash Experiment. Uh, in this one, uh, it was first conducted by Solomon Ash in the 1950s. The setup is a simple one. You put together a panel of subjects, one real subject and a handful of fake subjects. So they have a panel of people going to answer questions. One of the pers- people doesn't know what's going on. All the others are actors. They're they're there to play a role. 
One by one, the subjects are being asked a series of multiple choice questions to which the answer is always obvious. And all the fake subjects will get every answer wrong. (laughs) And the question is whether or not the real subject will maintain his correct answer or begin to conform with the group. Isn't that interesting? The conclusion, while most people maintain their right answers, I mean, you know, it, I mean, it, it's, it would be insanely stupid on one level, right? To, okay, what color is this? And it's blue, and everybody's, oh, I think it's pink, it's brown. And imagine that. I mean, who would ever change their answer? 37% changed their answers. Over one-third of people to very obvious truths. Just because of the pressure of the other so-called expert panelists, (laughs) they change their answers. They think, well, what kind of world creates the kind of people that have that kind of lack of conviction? Well, more and more, we're going to see that. Because a part of what's happening in our culture, let me pause here for a second, is God is sending a message. Because we've been raised with uh, certain values, we've been raised with certain truths, we've been raised in the shadow of worship to God, and we've been lived in, in in nations that previously, you know, significant percentages of the Canadian population at the very least believed in God, even if they weren't perfect Christians. They believed in God and they ascribed to a certain caliber of moral ethics that, that were agreed upon, and, but that basic honor, that basic willingness to honor God and worship God caused something to come into the land. Yeah. And that, that, that fabric of that thing that came into the land, the com- commodity of the presence of God has been on this land. Right. But as the nation turns against the knowledge of God, what happens is that commodity starts to leave. And we start to find out that the culture we had, which we previously thought was, well, this is just the way people are, right? That's why years ago, you know, when when you saw Hitler and Germany and Rwanda and the killing fields of Southeast Asia, all these murderous, evil things happened, people were shocked. Like, how could people act like this? Because... We basically believed that, you know, this is, the, this is the normal way. But this is the way we have been as a country is not the normal way. We've been given this by virtue of the faith of our forefathers that allowed something to come into the nation of Canada, the Western world, if you will. And it's caused us to have a certain general capacity to consider one another. But what you're starting to realize is that consideration is vacating. Because it comes from God. And when you exclude God from a nation, all the things that are normative to God leave. Somebody was just telling me a story the other day. (laughs) I think this is, you're going to see more and more of this, right? Because God is trying to say, listen, you think you're so good, you're not so good. Come to me and I'll give you goodness. But anyway, a friend of mine was on a plane here recently and he he, he was one of the you know, he had an elite status, so he was one of the first ones on the plane, and he had the good fortune of being able to put his bag above his head in the uh, stowaway cabin there, or whatever you call that, little locker thing. 
I, I use these a lot, but <laughs> you'd think I'd remember the name. Anyway, so he's sitting in his chair, and, you know, the plane's starting to fill up, and the, one of the last guys comes on. He's got a seat way in the back. He comes up to my friend's chair, and he turns and looks at the stuff. He takes his bag out of the compartment and puts it in the middle of the aisle and takes his bag and puts it in the place of that other bag and then goes to his seat. <laughs> I know, it, it, it seems stunning, right? But the person I'm, who shared this story is in the room today and I know them to be a very honest person, so this is not made up. Now, I've seen all kinds of levels of inconsiderate, mindless activity, but this is, I, this is unbelievable, Right? But the fact that a person could do this with a straight face in this day and age suggests something is going awfully wrong. Right? So (laughs) they go back to their seat, and he, of course, is not one to be pushed over because he has convictions and boldness, and he's a a redhead. Anyway, he stands up, and he... uh, (laughs) Gingers are great. Let's say it together. We love gingers. Okay. Anyway, he takes, he gets up, he takes that guy's bag, puts it down, puts his bag up, and closes the compartment. A few minutes later, the uh, stewardess comes along, or what do they call them now? Flight attendant, yeah. Made the mistake of calling somebody a stewardess. I got balled out, yeah. We haven't used that. Anyway. (laughs) She comes up, she says, whose bag is this? And he says, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, finally she lifts it up whose bag is this and some guy comes to the back and says it's my bag but it was up there and, and he said everybody around starts <laughs> telling the, the flight attendant what really happened and, and his excuse is yeah but I needed to put my bag somewhere I needed to put my bag somewhere I mean what a thin justification for such a dishonorable act But this is the fallout when people lose the ability to consider one another. And the ability to consider one another comes from God. It's not normal. It's not earthly. It's heavenly. And as we know God more and more, and as we are uh, raised in traditions that are connected to God, we start absorbing these values. But believe me, if you've ever been in some places in the world where none of these values exist, you're going to love this country in a way you never loved it before. You're going to want to love God in a way you've never loved it before because you realize that, oh, we, I, thought, I thought we were just, you know, everybody was like this. But no, not everybody's like this. So, anyway, uh, I think I shared the conclusion already. 37% of the people were pressured, had not enough courage to stand by a simple and obvious answer when surrounded by antagonists. The next next one is called the uh, Festinger's Cognitive Dissonant Experiment. Uh, this one is done in 1954 by Leon Festinger, as you can imagine. Created an experiment to e- evaluate the phenomena of cognitive dissonance. His setup was, again, quite simple. A subject is given a repetitive, and this is really interesting. Listen to this. He's given a repetitive and dull 
physical task to do. Okay? Uh, originally, the first uh, experiment was turning wooden pegs. You know, wooden pegs, just turning them over, I guess, and putting, putting them the other way around. So he was asked to do this. And after the task is completed, the subject is instructed to go and prepare the next subject, who happens to be a lab assistant, for the test. And here's what they wanted to see. They wanted to see how would they present this test, this task, because to them it's a task. Now, uh, that's the actual, that's what they're observing. And so they were going to ask the person, uh, they, were going to, they wanted to see how interesting did they display this task to be. It is, I mean, it's the worst, right? It's the most boring thing you could do. I mean, it's worse than being a painter. I love painters, but it's boring work. <laughs> Anything repetitive to me is boring. I hate doing things twice. Anyway, the, uh, but what they did is that the subjects are divided into two groups. One group is paying, paid $20 for turning the pegs around, and the, the other group is paid $1. Okay, and they wanted to see, is there a difference in how they explain the task afterwards. Question being, how honest are they going to be about the task? The conclusion, after lying to the fake subjects and being paid their money, the real subjects uh, are, are interviewed later on. And it says, interestingly, the $20 subjects generally told the truth about how they considered the task. The ones who were given $1 lied. And here's the conclusion. Say, the people who were given more money didn't need to, to justify the value of the event. The ones who were being paid very little had to kind of do somersaults in their mind to justify why they were doing it for so little money. Say, well, it was kind of fun. <laughs> and so that was the inclination, that the ones who were paid almost nothing had to begin to make themselves believe that the thing was worth doing in and of itself. And now, this, this connects really close to issues of, of personal, our personal sense of value, right? It, this hits at the core of what do we believe about ourselves? I'm just, I want to pray right now. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, God, that your spirit would reach deeply into our being and touch our identity. Father, in Jesus' name. You see, the ones that lied, that justified the, the project, doing this boring work, they had to do that to save face. They had to do that to, to not look like a, a schmuck, to not look naive, to not look stupid. And so it strikes at, again, the fear component that when you have no self-worth, you have to do somersaults to defend the fact that you have no self-worth to bolster the reality of that, that uh, conviction. Now, the last one, I'm going to go through this really quickly. Uh, it was actually called a monkey ladder experiment, but they turned out to be not true. And so I won't even bother telling you this because we don't have that much time now. 
But what happened is, is they created a, another cognitive experiment similar to it. And this one has fake subjects. Well, let me read it. When subjects walk into a doctor's room filled with fake patients. When a bell sounds, all the fake patients stand up for a second and then sit back down. Room full of people waiting to see the doctor. One person is in there who hasn't been told to stand up when the bell rings. Everybody else stands up and then sits back down. So after this process repeats a few times, the fake patients are slowly removed one by one uh, and replaced with subjects. And the, sec- uh, and the, the, the experiment is to see whether they will... You know, once all the fake actors, or the real actors, the fake subjects, once they are totally gone from the room, will the room continue to do this inane, ridiculous, and useless practice because of that herd mentality? Uh, All of these... And I won't bother reading the rest of the the conclusions of that, but you can see, you can imagine how it went. But people are fearful. People are insecure. And uh, we're born that way. And what happens as you get older is you find ways to cope with your fear. You find ways to cope with your lack of identity, your worthlessness. And so we pour ourselves into activities that establish value for us. And we create systems around us of reward and affirmation uh, in order to, to deflect the power of that sense of fear and worthlessness that's on us. When I think about it, I mean, we're, we're, at, we're at the apex, I think, in some ways, but maybe we're not. I don't know. But we joke about this sometimes with this last generation, and I, I've never been involved as a first-hand participant in the education system, but the, the fear has grown so great and the false empathy related to that fear like when when you when you feel bad for somebody you want to try and defray that experience you want to try and cause it not to happen so what what's happened teachers and administrators in schools don't want to tell students that they're bad students they don't want to actually ever tell anybody they got the wrong answer Sports communities are changing so that nobody who's better is ever recognized because if you do that, you're going to hurt the ones that aren't as good. And so instead of having a real system of reward and acknowledgement and affirmation, we give everybody a medal. We give everybody a trophy. We we don't give marks. We don't want to say this is right or this is wrong. And where does that lead to? Yeah, exactly. Get to the place where nobody can say anything about anything. Because we're at a place now in our culture where our capacity for offense is so great, is so significant. Why? Because there's no real courage. Because there's no real identity. Because fear has grown to such proportions in people that we have no courage to do anything that's right, even if it is right. And so the evidences are all around us that this is what's happening. 
And uh, furthermore, what you have is you have something happening in the earth that began at the fall. I'm going to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 1 and quickly explain this and then we're going to conclude. The Bible's talking about the Apostle Paul is writing here in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's talking about what happened to us when we came to Jesus and how that he, he changed us, he transformed us, he freed us from our sins. And this is what he says about the condition of humanity. This is really important because we need to understand that whether you believe this or not, whether you know it to be true, whether you have some connection or insight on the spirit realm, that this is the case. In the same way that Hebrews says that mankind is always subject to slavery because of fear, this is also equally true. And this is what it says, talking about Jesus to the Ephesians. He says, and you he made alive. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, before you knew Jesus, you were subject. You were subject to an atmosphere. In the same way people today are subject to gravity. Everybody's walking around there, you're subject to gravity. Whether you believe in gravity or not. Gravity is effective, it's working. If you uh, drop something, if you let something go that you're suspending into the air, it's going to drop to the ground. That's the way gravity works. He's saying, listen, whether you knew it or not, when you were, before you knew God, before you knew Christ, you were subject to principles that were in the air. They were effective. They automatically work whether you have an ability to recognize it, acknowledge them, or believe them to true. It doesn't matter. They are there. And it is a system of intimidation and corruption and coercion that continually is pressing on the nations of the earth. It's always at work. Always at work. And it's there because of Lucifer. Because Lucifer rebelled from God. And his objective is to enslave the whole world. Now, if you know this, you look at the world events in a different way than those who don't know this. But particularly what becomes important is you start looking at the world around you with these psychological experiments in mind, and you start to realize that all of them have been playing out in our world. The fear has uh, the lack of courage, the lack of conviction, the need to do things to please other people around us, the need to not be uh, the only one going this way when everybody's going this way. Uh, That inability to avoid the pressure The herd mentality, the direction that everybody has, it takes an unusual person. But according to the Bible, it takes somebody who sees the world as it really is. And because of that vision, because of what they see, are able to do the right thing. Now what God has, is he has a system in place to free us from that coercion. And what he's inviting us to is to get to know him. 
What he's inviting us to is a process where we are liberated increasingly over the course of the years of our life. And this is what he said, listen, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. And if you draw near to me and I draw near to you, you will get freer and freer and freer and freer. That there's more things out there in this world designed to uh, enslave you than you can possibly imagine. And what God is saying is that I am the source of liberty. I am the only one who can release you from the chains you don't even know you have. And my objective is to build a kingdom with people that have been freed. And that's why we're here today. That's why we come to church. That's why we worship God in the way we are. Because we are getting freer and freer and freer. The significance of that freedom is beginning to play out in our nation at a pace it never has in the history that I've read. Because, you know, maybe pre settlement times. I don't know what the world was really like, what the cultures were like. But the whole nations, all the nations of the earth are subject to these forces. The deconstruction of values and virtues that we know, that we have once uh, were at one thought to be in, in, inherent to us, a part of our nature, just normative. We realize, no, they were temporary. And if they were temporary, they came from somewhere. And they're going back to the place from which they came. Unless, unless. Now, I don't think God is allowing this to happen so that Canada, you know, spirals down into oblivion. I don't think that's the purpose. I think it's to create an awakening. I, I believe... That, you know, it's kind of like how God does in our life. Those of you that are Christians, you know how it is. When God's trying to deal with pride in your life, pride is this, I can do this. And God said, no, you can't. I can do this. No, you can't. I can do this by myself. No, you can't. But, you know, at some point, God will stop saying, no, you can't. He'll just take a step back. How's this working out for you? And so God is taking a step back from Canada, and he's asking a question. How, how's it working? Like, you're starting to see the direction. You're starting to see where this is landing. Do you like the fruit that you're seeing? Do you like the, the loss of absolutes? Do you like the loss of values? Do you like the confusion? Do you like the fear? Do you like the tyranny? Do you see that it's only going to get darker if you keep going in this direction? I mean, it's a game of hot and cold, really. But God is inviting us, and I believe we're coming to a place where there's enough common sense, where there's enough spiritual hunger, where there's enough you know, desire for reality in our nation that people are starting to step up. This people are starting to step up in the political realm. People are starting to stand up in universities. People are starting to stand up in their workplace. Like, like you know, I, I mean, maybe you didn't think you were the person responsible for advancing the truth and changing your culture, but you are. But what does it take? Say people who are willing to lay down their lives for what is true. And that's the kind of courage that only comes from love. That's the kind of courage that, that only comes when God has changed your heart so you start valuing the people next to me. And you're not just shrugging your shoulders and saying, sucks to be you. Furthermore, you realize that 
We're tethered to each other, and where they go, we go. And for that reason alone, courage needs to rise up. But let's stand up here for a second. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I realize that this prayer means different things to different people. As you might be here today and you're not even a Christian. You, you, you came last week because there was hot dogs and hamburgers. And you were hoping there might be more today. I was hoping the same. But you have an opportunity to enter into this journey with us. Maybe you haven't realized or seen the concerns. You haven't shared in our concerns. Maybe you haven't uh, maybe gone down the same path we have at some point in time. But you know that there's something off. There's something awry. And you want to be a part of the answer for this nation. God is inviting you to change your life first. If you want to pray with somebody today, maybe you don't know Jesus, you've never asked Jesus in your heart, you have no clue what this is about, except that you're feeling maybe while you're in the room today that God might be real. God might have an intention for me. I want you, when I I close this, to come and talk to some of these people and get them to pray for you. But I want us to pray this right now. I'm just going to pray it out, and, and you just agree with your heart. Father, I pray, God, that you would give us courage. I pray that you would draw us closer to you. I pray that you would give us an insight into the place, the precarious place we are as a nation. Father, I pray, God, that the sense of responsibility, God, that, that, uh, that many hide behind, Father, Many allow other uh, things to happen because they don't think they're responsible. Father, I pray that you would invest in us today a sense of responsibility that says where the nation goes, you're going, unless you turn it around. That it's our responsibility to turn our our workplaces, turns our neighborhoods, turn our, 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 uh, our political system. God, I pray in Jesus' name. You would invest in us the hope the promise and the sense of what is right enough that would give us the courage to do the right things. I pray, God, that for every Christian in this room, God, that we would advance along this, this same trajectory for more of you. Now, if you'd like to receive Jesus today, I'm going to close in just a second. I want you to come and just ask for prayer. And if you... There are others here that might like prayer today. I know I'd like to get more prayer for my back today. I'm believing for a healing. Maybe you have pain in your body. Maybe you've got a migraine headache. Maybe you've got inflammation in your joints. Maybe you have a problem with a kidney. God wants to heal it today. But maybe you just realize, man, I have a lot more fear than I knew. And you want to present that to God to say, God, deal with this fear. I don't want to be afraid anymore. Father, thank you, Lord, that you've invited us into the light. That you invite us, us, Lord, to draw near to you. And as we dismiss today, God, I pray that your power and your presence would go with each one. And Father, that the reality of the world in which we live, the reality as you see it, would cascade down upon us in our dreams that this week we'll be reminded over and over and over that these things are inescapable truths.
shift and change our perspective, we pray in Jesus' name.